From the Church Pension Group, this is Choose Well. Hi, my name is Krishna Dalakia, and this is Choose Well, the podcast that focuses on well-being, from maintaining physical and psychological health to being financially secure. Today, we're talking about financial capability and investment fraud. Leading the questions for today's episode is Janet Todd. Well, thank you, Krishna. Janet serves as the Director of Curriculum Development for the Church Pension Group. She is responsible for curriculum used in CPG's education programs. Our guest joining us is Jerry Walsh. Great to be here. Thank you. Jerry is the Senior Vice President of Investor Education at the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, also known as FINRA. She is responsible for the development and operations of FINRA's Investor Education Program. Jerry is also president of the FINRA Investor Education Foundation, where she manages the foundation's strategic initiatives to educate and protect investors and to foster financial capability for all Americans. In this episode, Janet and Jerry talk about financial capability and how we can build our ability to weather financial strains. Jerry, I'm so glad that you're joining us today. As Krishna mentioned in the introduction, you have such a vast amount of experience working in the investor education field, and you bring such enthusiasm to your work. What is it about the field of investor education that keeps you coming to work every morning? Oh my goodness, I feel like I have the best job ever because I work day in, day out on helping Americans build their financial capability, whether it's through direct programming or research that we do or partnerships that we engage in. Um, It's just a fabulous way to think about how to lift people up and get control of their finances. And I know that FINRA has done an Investment Education Foundations initiative And it was on a financial capability study, which obviously ties right into what brings you to work every day. So can you tell us a little bit about the study and what was the focus and what were you trying to learn? Sure. Well, almost, gosh, more than 10 years ago in 2009, we set out to see whether we could benchmark where Americans stood when it comes to their knowledge and their attitudes and their beliefs about money. And uh, we worked with a team of researchers and sort of centered around this concept of financial capability, which really encompasses a combination of knowledge, resources, access, experience, and also habits. And we started creating this collection of of data, this rich data set. Um, More than 25,000 people were surveyed with each wave of the study. But we've done this survey in 2009, 2012, 15, and 18 most recently. And we're getting ready to go into the field in 2021. Um, And so what we've learn is where Americans are uh, when it comes to managing their money, um, thinking about making ends meet, planning ahead, managing financial products, and then how they make financial decisions. So what are some of the results and answers to those questions? Well, having this this kind of 
series of, of surveys that have been done over a number of years, we actually see trends. And the first survey was done shortly after the, the worst impacts of the financial crisis were being felt by Americans. You'll remember that the markets were extraordinarily volatile at that point. Unemployment rose. Uh, debt was increasing. People were really financially strapped. And so what we saw in the 2018 study is that while in general there was economic growth and declining unemployment, um, there were still persistent signs of widening divides between those who are prospering and those who are struggling financially. And that was particularly true for younger Americans, um, for those who didn't have a college degree, uh, for African Americans, and for those with lower incomes. That's really interesting because I was looking at the latest survey and I was noticing that a lot of people answered that they had confidence in their ability to do finances and that they thought they had a good deal of knowledge. But when it actually came to the behavior, a lot of people were not showing the good financial behavior. So why do you think that our American population is so underprepared in the financial area? Well, I think as a country, we do believe that we are capable of pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. And, you know, I think there's some element uh, of overconfidence that that you see with kind of, you know, fake it till you make it. Right. But but yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of a a kind of a traditional American trait in a lot of ways. Um, But there's also, you know, we do see that financial literacy is low generally in the United States. But part of that can have to do with the kinds of products that people are interfacing with. If you don't own a home, you might not be able to answer the question about mortgages. And for people over the past 10 years who have seen historically low interest rates, while we wish that people understood the power of compound interest, both for gain and for debt, we haven't been seeing that. People people don't see their bank accounts growing at the rate that they did maybe in the 80s or the 90s. Um, so that is one of the issues um, that we're concerned about. And we see that there are positive correlations of people having you know, a stronger ability to withstand financial shocks, a better management of their debt and credit the higher their financial literacy levels are. So there are some good behaviors like saving for retirement, like planning ahead that are correlated with higher levels of financial literacy. And we have to be really careful not to suggest that there's causation, but there is that connection there, that correlation, which suggests that more financial education, more focus on how to build financial capability within your family, within your community, can have some positive dividends over the long term. Yeah, with the, um, hopefully not dating myself too much, but when I was in high school, I think our financial education was, how do you write a check? And that was about it. They didn't teach us anything about how to manage our money, how to make a budget, how to do any of that. And I'm seeing a lot more information coming across the financial medias about 
providing education in K through 12, which I think is so important, which ties into those that are more educated in this area tend to do better. Although one of the findings was that even the people whose behavior was better, they still were overusing or having a little bit excess use on the credit card side. So what are some of the other factors um, that might be causing people to overspend or spend more than they need to? Well, there are really a couple. And, and one is that Americans are not saving. So even though we're seeing that, you know, more people report that they're able to make ends meet, about half of Americans have not set aside money to cover expenses for three months, what a lot of financial planners and financial counselors call a rainy day fund or emergency savings. Having precautionary savings is strongly correlated with the ability to withstand a financial shock. We, we asked people, you know, if you had to come up with $2,000 in a month's time, you know, could you do it? And it was fascinating because $2,000 is the typical, you know, unexpected legal bill or home repair, auto repair. As someone just living as an adult in America, it is likely that someday you will have that kind of a, a shock that you're not expecting. But so many people cannot come up with that money, especially if they don't have precautionary savings. And we see that people are leaning on credit because they've got too much debt, but about half of Americans feel like they have too much debt and yet they still turn to credit cards, still turn to expensive non-bank borrowing, like going to a payday lender or a rent to own operation. So, you know, we do see that while people feel like they can make ends meet, a lot of people are living on the edge and they're just one financial shock away from a potential spiral of debt. And, and I'm sure that a lot of that has been brought forth with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So many people out of work, so many people unable to actually tide themselves through this time because they don't have um, that emergency fund set aside. And I imagine the use of credit is going to go up at this time. It will be interesting to see in your 2021 study if any of this gets reflected from this time period. The other thing I was interested about also is how do you think social media might impact the way Americans are spending their money? Well, especially uh, during a time of social distancing where people are staying at home, I think more people are spending time online, more people have time to spend online and checking social media. In general, though, so let's pretend that COVID-19 never happened, which goodness knows that's, that's a very big assumption. But, you know, influencers have outsized impact on people sometimes. And, you know, you hear of Kate Middleton wearing a dress to a garden show and all of a sudden that brand has outsold. Uh, it's yeah. it's supply. And, you know, it's amazing to me to think that people can make those decisions. I guess maybe I'm just a, a, a frugal person in part because that's how I grew up. I, I The whole reason I got into this field is because, um, you know, I was the daughter of Irish immigrants, working class, blue collar. Um, you know, my siblings and I were the first 
first to go to college and you know we we definitely had to pay our way through college although I was extraordinarily fortunate with um with uh, uh, scholarships and such, but I made some unfortunate decisions as a law student. I didn't understand the devastating power of compound interest and didn't understand that while some of my loans were federal loans, others were, um, they were, uh, they were not guaranteed. And so the interest was capitalizing over the life of the loan, including while I was in school. So I came out of law school with a substantially larger debt burden than my back of the envelope math had predicted. So that's part of the reason why I care so much about this because, you know, sometimes it's 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 not that people aren't doing their best and trying hard. It's that there are sometimes factors that if you've never been exposed to them, concepts that you've never seen in operation, you don't understand how they're going to have an impact on your finances and how they can set you back for a really long time. Yeah, I um I taught in college level for many many years, and I would ask these students, you know, so what is your plan? Because I taught in finance and taught the basic calculations of how do you calculate payments on loans, and I would ask them what their plan was, and they hadn't even done the calculation to know what you know they were going to be facing when they got out of school, and as you said, if they don't really understand the underlying way the interest is being calculated, it can negatively affect them and they don't even realize that that's happening to them. So. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we asked about in uh, this most recent uh, wave of the National Financial Capability Study uh, was, you know, looking back at your college experience, um, do you wish that you had gone to a less expensive college. And among those who had student loans uh, for their own education, 47% of people indicated that they wished they had gone to a less expensive school. Wow, uh, that's is, a lot. Uh, yeah, and you think about how many people have college debt. You know, just about a quarter of people say that they have a current student loan either for themselves or for a family member, um, and that's been holding pretty steady. But when when that many of those who've taken out loans wish that they had shopped around for colleges or better understood the price of college, it's a little bit frightening. And that ties into that American dream idea, right? We all want to go to college. We want college for our children. But only about one in three parents who have children who are currently minors are saving for their child's college education. So it's it that that's there's a negative inheritance type of effect where, you know, if you as an individual take out substantial student debt, it's going to take you that much longer to be able to buy a house, to be able to accumulate other assets, investment accounts and the like. And you're also in some ways giving a negative inheritance to your children because you're paying back your own loans even as your children are growing up and yeah. wouldn't it be a better gift to be able to save for college and, and, and save for their education? So we know that Americans are not necessarily financially prepared and sometimes they don't make the best choices for whatever that reason is and oftentimes not for their own or because of it's their own fault. What are some tips or suggestions that 
you would come up with or you would like to tell somebody in how to be better financially prepared? The most important thing that you can do is to take that assessment of where you are and whether you call it building a budget or building a spending plan, you know, thinking about that family balance sheet and what it looks like. Many Americans, and particularly Americans at the lower end of the income scale, are acutely aware of what's coming in and what's going out. They have a really strong sense of what they're able to afford. There's an interesting middle that we see coming out of the data from the National Financial Capability Study where uh, folks who are more middle class tend to be more indebted in part because they've taken on larger amounts of debt for a home or for an auto or for college. And so thinking about how you can whittle down some of the more expensive debt, like your credit card debt, like personal loans, while leveraging the full advantage, especially the tax advantages of something like a mortgage um, to keep your family's financial cash flow in good standing. You always want to make sure that you've got an emergency savings account, that you have at least three months, probably more like six months um, of income set aside. And certainly with COVID, um, there were a lot of families who experienced unexpected job loss. Contribute to your 401k um, if you have access to one. If there are matches available, leverage those to the greatest extent that you can. We have a tool on FINRA's website that actually helps people calculate out how they can save the max while getting uh, the greatest match from um, their employer-sponsored uh, plan. Those are the kinds of things that make a great deal of sense for all Americans. And as you have savings set aside, as you have your debt under control, start thinking about how to grow your assets through investing. We have a ton of resources on FINRA's website at finra.org that can help people get started or can help more advanced investors understand the choices that are available to them. It's interesting that you say three to six months worth of money. And if I were someone who was unable to or felt I was unable to save, was burdened by debt, that number might seem overwhelming to me. How would you suggest to that person to start building this emergency fund when there's, you know, they feel overwhelmed already? I'm not going to tell you to stop drinking coffee. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I need you my may, coffee. <laughs> you can have that latte. But it is overwhelming, right? And especially, you know, both in the context of getting a savings, you know, emergency savings in hand and, and thinking about retirement, a lot of the numbers that get thrown around are way too big and they feel out of reach. So take that small step. If it's just setting aside $20 a week, that alone will land you at close to $1,000 at the end of the year. So taking a small step, and if you can't, if you can't do uh, $20 a week, $5 a week, right? You'll still have $250 in emergency savings. And while three months, six months are all the ideals, the Urban Institute, some other organizations have done research that have shown that even savings of $500 or less, emergency savings of any amount, can help 
especially lower income families weather financial storms. So just put aside a dollar a day, $3 a day, as much as you can. And if you can, not everybody can, but if you are, um, if you have access to some kind of allocation system at your workplace where you can direct some of your paycheck to your, you know, day-to-day checking account, but you can allocate another portion to a savings account, a separate savings account, do that because then what you're doing is you're paying yourself first. You never see the money show up in the account that you use for your day-to-day transactions in your monthly bills, it's set aside someplace else. And there's a behavioral reason that you want to do that. You're making it a little bit more difficult to access that money. So it's less likely that you're going to spend it. And it doesn't register in your day-to-day. You don't feel it in your pocket. So you don't even know it's there. You don't even, you won't even miss it. So that's probably the best way to get started. And I think, you hit the nail on the head when you used the word behavioral, that the knowledge isn't enough. We have to find ways to make it easy for us to do this so it doesn't feel difficult. You know, what some people do is they have almost like a, um, a personal coach, but it's a, it's a family member or it's a friend. Um, you know, some book clubs do this where people hold one another accountable, where you talk a little bit about how much you saved. And the fact that you have to talk about it inspires you to do it. You don't want to be the one who either has to lie, which is never <laughs> desirable, <laughs> or, or right. you know, say, I didn't exactly. do it this month. Exactly. It's kind of like the, uh, the weigh-in, right? Uh, yeah, having that. Weight. I knew I had a friend who her method was every time she got a $5 bill, she would put it aside and not spend it. And so when some unexpected expense came up, she had this stash of $5 bills. And I'm not saying that's the best thing to do is, you know, stuff it under your mattress. But it's the same type of idea that you were talking about is do something that works for you behaviorally. And recognize that what works for you may not be what works for your friends. And maybe more importantly, what works for your friends or family might not work for you. You have to figure out what it is for you. You have to know your own financial picture, assess your goals, and then take action against those goals to to help achieve them. I think that's why the the latte example doesn't work for a lot of people. <laughs> Cuz they know they're just not going to make it through the day and they need to have that latte. So, I would be awfully crabby if I didn't have my latte. Exactly. Thank you so much Janet and Jerry. In the second part of this interview, Janet and Jerry talk about financial fraud. They discuss some of the persuasion tactics fraudsters use some signs that someone has become a victim of fraud, and tips on ways to respond to a potential scammer. Also, please be sure to check out the other resources that CPG has to offer in our Learning Center and e-learning library. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Theme music for our podcast is by Fran McKendry. And please join us again for Choose Well. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fees and other terms and restrictions may apply. 
The information presented here is not investment advice and does not take into account the investment objectives, financial situation, or retirement needs of particular individuals. It is important that you consider this information in the context of your personal risk tolerance, investment objectives, and financial and retirement goals. You should not rely on this information in making any investment or other decision that will affect your personal financial, retirement, or tax situation. You should contact your own professional advisor prior to making any such decision. Neither the Church Pension Fund nor any of its affiliates, collectively CPG, is responsible for the content, performance, or security of any website referenced herein that is outside the www.cpg.org domain or that is not otherwise associated with a CPG entity. You've been listening to Choose Well from the Church Pension Group. 